0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. During the program, we'll continue our study of 1 Corinthians, looking at what it means to mature as believers. Let's join Dr. Newfeld with today's message on Mere Humanity from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to
1: 4. I wonder how many of you are familiar with the story of Peter Pan. Peter Pan is a little boy who refuses to grow up and spends his time having magical adventures. It's a great story. It's as wonderful as this story is, in real life, a little boy who refuses to grow up is a 35-year-old who lives at home with his parents and never gets a job. Now, that's not a wonderful adventure. It's a disaster. But do you know some people are afraid to grow up? And when you think about it, very few people respect eternal childhood. Did you know that sometimes happens in the spiritual realm? There are some Christians who never grow up. They're like 35-year-old fat babies in diapers who cry and whine and bellyache and never do one useful thing around the house of God and who simply disturb everyone else. In fact, whenever that happens, it brings trouble to the local church. And that's exactly what happened to the church in Corinth. The very fact that they were divided into four factions, all surrounding their favorite preacher or leader, shows that they are sad people who never got mature. They're like a 55-year-old man who unbuttons his shirt to the navel and rides sports cars and tries to make passes at women who are 25. Now, if that's you, No one thinks that's attractive, and no one thinks a Christian is attractive who does not grow up to become spiritually mature, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and walking in a spirit of humility. Now, does that sound like harsh language? Well, I guess it is. But that's exactly how Paul describes certain believers in the church in Corinth. They tragically have not grown up. And that's the reason the church in the ancient city of Corinth, instead of influencing their culture, was being transformed by their culture and were in danger of becoming ineffective and losing the reason for their calling. Now let's read our text. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 3 verses 1 to 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human?" Now notice Paul's way of describing the situation at Corinth. Please notice the last five words in verse 3, only in a human way. Now notice the last three words in verse 4, being merely human. And that for me is the title of this address, merely human. When we as Christians are merely human, something has gone horribly wrong. Now, we might say, well, what's wrong with being merely human? Well, apparently, Paul thought that growing up as a Christian was all about growing beyond being merely human. And isn't that fascinating? How many times have you heard someone say, well, I'm only human? Now, normally, what we have in mind is that we're not perfect and we're prone to mistakes. We have sayings like, to err is human, and to forgive is divine. In other words, no one's perfect. And we should all give each other a little bit of slack and not judge them for their mistakes. Now, I'm all for that, and it sounds like good advice. Paul is certainly not demanding perfection from the Corinthian believers. But sometimes we use the excuse for being merely human as a cover-up for sins. Well, yes, I did sleep with her, but I'm only human. Yes, I got mad and started using profanity, but I'm only human. You can only take so much. See, being human can be used as an excuse for bad behavior, and it's even been used as an excuse for rebellion against God. See, Paul has been writing to a deeply divided church. They were fighting over leadership. They were in danger of adopting ways of living and thinking that reflected the culture in which they lived. And because wisdom is such a key theme in the city of Corinth, Paul plays on that theme. The culture in which you live, he says, thinks that the cross is foolishness, but in fact, it is the wisdom of God. The culture in which you live thinks that a great orator or a great public speaker is the key to Christian discipleship. You got that idea from your culture, which views great orators like superstars. In fact, the cross is the key to Christian discipleship. But there's more. Merely human or natural people, soulish people, whose perspective on life is a reflection of their world and their culture are incapable of seeing the value of God's wisdom. They never welcome it, but see the cross as an unwelcome intrusion into their lives. Only when a person becomes spiritual, that is, when they are led by God's Spirit, do they see the cross as valuable and the key to all the issues of life. Indeed, only when they are led by God's Spirit will they understand the mind of Christ. Well, today I want us to see that God wants us to grow up spiritually, and I want us to see what growing up spiritually is like. What I'm going to say is that being spiritual is having the mind of Christ. The same mind that led Jesus to the cross is the same mind that lives in spiritually mature people. It is a mind that includes values like humility and servanthood and sacrifice and obedience and the embracing of the pathway of suffering. Until you get Christ's mind, you've not grown up spiritually. Until we get Christ's mind in us, we're being merely human. So let's begin with a description of mere humanity. Let's go back to verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I want you to notice several things about verse 1. Paul begins by calling the Corinthians brothers. Now, that term includes everyone, that's sisters as well. But notice also that this is not a letter written to those who do not know Christ. These are born-again believers. Paul never doubts that. Furthermore, by employing the use of the term brothers, he employs the language of family and of solidarity. He's not distancing himself from this troublesome church. He continues to speak to people who have rejected him and don't understand the revolutionary message of the cross as they should, as his Christian family who are dear and precious to him. I find that attitude refreshing and remarkable. Here's what I know of the Church of Jesus Christ. It is anything but perfect. I love what Charles Spurgeon admitted about the church. He said, The church is faulty, but that's no excuse for you're not joining it if you're the Lord's. Nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, a nursery of God's weak children where they are nurtured and grow strong. Spurgeon went on to call the church the dearest place on earth, no doubt. It's that, but it can also be one of the harshest places on earth. I've noticed how the church brings out the very best and the very worst in all of us. And why is it that brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Christ, who have come to trust in Christ alone, can act in ways we do, divide against each other, and fill this dearest place on earth with rancor and lack of understanding? But it did happen that way in Corinth, and it does happen that way today. Divided churches that harm each other are one of the primary reasons why local churches are ineffective for Christ. Often what's required is genuine, heartfelt repentance, but there is more. Division is often what Paul labels it here. It's a sign of spiritual infancy. Furthermore, spiritual growth into maturity is unlike physical growth into maturity. In physical growth, you can measure how old a person is, but that's not easily done in spiritual growth. Here's another difference. I'll bet that a lot of you who have children at home have some kind of a growth chart on the wall somewhere in your house. So you have Susie stand with her back against the wall and then you put a little mark on the chart and then you have a look at it. And then you say, look Susie, this is how much you grew in the last year. And of course, Susie is so proud of herself. But in spiritual realm, things are just a little more complex, aren't they? It's often the case that the person who is quite immature imagines herself or himself to be more mature than they actually are. They're involved in creating strife, but they blame that strife on others, feeling they're correct and right in their opinions and that the others are wrong. They're so often the reason for strife, but they feel justified in what they do. Paul mentions that those who should have matured and yet have not are the people of the flesh. Now, in Paul, the flesh is a concept he returns to often. The flesh is roughly equivalent to the sinful nature. The flesh consists of repeated habitual patterns within an individual they return to over and over again without even thinking about it. Look at it this way. Every time you come home from work or school or wherever you come from, chances are you don't have to remember where you left your car keys. You have a place where you leave them every time. You have a pattern so ingrained that you never think about it. The next day, you simply go back to that place where you left your keys, the same place you always do because it's a habit and you don't have to think about it. Well, the flesh is like that. If your repeated pattern is, whenever you're angry and frustrated, you lash out at someone, that's what you do without ever thinking about it. The pattern is established. But as a person grows in Christ, they begin by the Spirit to wage war against the flesh. And through the power that God gives us, through learning how to submit this ingrained pattern of the flesh to the power of the cross, the pattern is broken. It gives way. It yields to a power greater than itself. And that's what spiritual growth is. When we come back, we're going to see how this relates to factions and spiritual immaturity.
0: In these verses, Paul really lays it down for all believers about the importance of maturing in Christ, because that is the goal of sanctification. When we allow our relationships to become divisive, that is a sure sign of our immaturity. We'll see more truths about what growing in faith really looks like and how to overcome the flesh when we return from this short break. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join Back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. So to learn more or to register today, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.
1: When Paul grasped that the Corinthian church was deeply divided, he realized that immature believers were giving key leadership to the church. They may have thought of themselves as mature. After all, they were in leadership, but they really were immature. The flesh still ruled them. They were making judgmental statements about key leaders in the church in a way that demonstrated a habitual pattern, a fleshly pattern. So we've been trying to get a picture of what Paul calls mere humanity or spiritual infancy. The first mark of mere humanity is this, fleshly patterns rule us. Now These patterns are often seen in a spirit of judgmentalism that condemns people based upon abilities. Perceived weaknesses, and according to the calling God has assigned someone. Some of you who are listening struggle with that very thing. It's a sign of spiritual babyhood. Now let's read verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready. Now from this text, it seems that there is some kind of food that people in spiritual infancy are not yet able to consume. So what does milk and solid food actually refer to? I think we need to be careful in how we understand this. Christianity is not a secret society in which we hide spiritual truths from people until they're further along, kind of like a, a Masonic lodge. You remember that Paul says that when he first came to Corinth, he was careful to center all of his preaching and teaching in the cross. Remember 1 Corinthians two, 2? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now is that milk? Well, yeah. But it's also solid food. The cross is the food of those who are new believers and those who are mature believers. The more we grow in Christ, the more we are aware of our need for a greater and a deeper and a more profound understanding of the cross. There are no secret truths we only reveal later. What we reveal from the start and later is the same thing. Well then what's the difference between milk and solid food? Well, interestingly enough, that analogy of milk and solid food is found all through the New Testament, and it's found often enough to make me believe that the analogy of milk and solid food was a common analogy, that all the Christian teachers used it. Not only does Paul use this language, Peter uses it as well. In 1 Peter 2.2, he says, Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. In other words, you have to feed new Christians milk they need to grow. Or listen to Hebrews 5.12 and 13. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So you can see from that passage that milk has to do with mastering the basic principles of the oracles of God or the basic doctrines of the word of Christ. So how do we know if we're an infant in Christ? Well, we've said that newborn Christians have not yet learned to master the flesh, and now we add to that another matter. We have not yet completed what I call Christianity 101. What I mean by this is that you've still not mastered basic Christian truths. Let me give you some examples of this. In research done in the United States, George Barna found a large percentage of people who claim to be Christians believe that Jesus committed sins in his lifetime. In other words, they had no doctrine of the Incarnation. He also found that many thought that Satan does not exist, but rather was a metaphor for evil, and hence, they could never understand spiritual warfare. Thirdly, he also found a great many Christians who believe that if a person is good enough or sincere about whatever religion he or she has, he or she will go to heaven regardless of his or her personal beliefs. In other words, there is no doctrine of the necessity of the cross. And I can add to this, a great many North American Christians don't understand the Trinity. They don't understand the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They don't understand what the Bible actually teaches about original sin or total depravity or redemption or the life of holiness or how faith works or how justification by faith works or God's absolute sovereignty over all things. I mean, the list goes on and on. Now, in Hebrews... What moves you from milk to solid food is not that you're progressing toward deeper doctrines as if some mystery has now been revealed. Rather, what moves you toward maturity is that by this time, says the writer of Hebrews, you should have been teachers. Of course, that doesn't mean that every Christian should become a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader of some sort. All the other things that we formally do to teach in the church, I think the writer of Hebrews has in mind something that he hints at. A teacher, he says, is skilled in the word of righteousness. The term skill indicates that mature believer knows how to take the truth of what he or she believes and make it work in everyday life. When they face trials or disappointments or temptations or loss and grief and joy, when they become poor or when they become rich, in short, they know how to communicate the great doctrines of the Bible into everyday practical living. And I might add, This is also why they are a teacher. Anyone who rubs shoulders with them begins to see how they might live out in everyday life Bible doctrines just the way the mature believer does so well in his or her own life. Now consider the Corinthian problem. In verse three, Paul says, "'For you're still of the flesh. "'For while there is jealousy and strife among you, "'are you not of the flesh and behaving "'in merely a human way?' In other words, if you had only seen the strengths and the weaknesses of Paul and of Apollos who served you and who provided an opportunity to work out your faith, you would have been well on your way to maturity. Instead, you argued about which teacher was better and who was better at communicating with others. See, instead of learning to be mature, you were learning to compare the strengths and weaknesses of your teachers. What a tragedy! And more. They were doing that because that's what Corinthian culture did. Corinthian culture worshiped superstars, and so that's what the Corinthian Christians did as well. So here's what we've learned about spiritual infancy or mere humanity. First, it's ruled by the flesh. Second, it has not yet mastered the basics of the Christian faith. And now we learn the third truth about spiritual infancy. It does not learn how to integrate our faith into all of life. And we have not learned how to adopt the values of the cross and reject the values of our culture. And that's the challenge to every childish Christian and every childish church. The reason why spiritual infants create conflicts and tensions in the church is that they have not grown in Christ. Furthermore, baby Christians cannot apply God's truth to daily living. Now let's read the last verse in our section. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, you are making superstars of your pastors, just like your culture, instead of learning from the message of the cross. Now, from this passage, we should learn that Christians must never be content to be merely human. We will never be satisfied with the idea that our way of living merely looks like the culture in which we live. Let's see if we can make an application. You know, one of the ways of measuring our spiritual progress is to look at the things that our culture around us values. What does our culture love and what does our culture hate? What patterns seem normal in our culture and what seems natural? Now, that's not to say that everything in our culture is wrong. I mean, I, for one, am so very grateful that the progress our culture has made in condemning racism. I'm so glad about that, and I applaud that. But there are other values that our culture holds that we should reject. Physical attractiveness is so important in our culture. Wealth, personal freedom apart from obligation. Youth is preferred over wisdom. Power over others is preferred. Sexual ethics are based upon what feels right. Feelings are preferred over righteousness. I mean, all those things are highly prized in our culture today, but they are rejected by those who are mature in Christ. In short, it's time, brothers and sisters, to grow up. It's not attractive for us to be ruled by the flesh, to be ignorant of the great truths of Scripture, and to be unable to integrate Scripture into our daily living. And once we set the course, assuming we must grow in Christ, we will soon find that divisions among us begin to fade and that the power of the gospel increases.
0: John, your message today reminded me of a song by Amy Grant. It was called Fat Baby, and it was all about those people that just want to stay where they are in their infancy. They're just content to be where they are. What would you say to those people?
1: Wow, I I hardly even know where to begin outside of this. Do you know how much joy you're missing? I mean, do you know how profound the Christian faith is? Do you know what it is to walk and live by faith? Do you know what it is to live out the pattern of your life? Have you ever seen someone come to Christ in your presence? I mean, all those things uh, that make up the life that God has for us, and we're missing out. I mean... Uh, You know, if the only thing that we have actually taken out of our faith is, you know, that God is is taking me to heaven when I die, and that's the only thing that we think about. I mean, I know that's a lot, Ben, and and you and I, I mean, we we hold that as a precious truth, but the reality of finding Christ in the everyday walk of our life is what we want. And and might I add this, what we're finding out in this life is what we want to live for in eternity— I want to learn to do everything for the glory of God here in this life because that's the eternity I'm preparing myself for. Uh, What in the world are we preparing ourselves for uh, when we're not, uh, you know, living out our Christian faith? So, that would be the urging that I might do, encourage people on, and uh, do something of what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians, urge them to be, to grow up, to be all that Christ wants them to be.
0: Well growing up in our faith is not an option according to the Apostle Paul. It is a command that we're to follow up until the day that God calls us home. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.
2: At year's end, we can't help but reflect on the partnership of so many across Canada that make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Particularly the important role our monthly partners play in providing consistent, reliable, foundational support for every resource Back to the Bible Canada has to offer. Recently, Jane wrote these words of encouragement. As monthly partners, my husband and I count it a great privilege to financially support Back to the Bible Canada. It's just a small but important way for us to partner in the gospel. Through listening to Dr. John's podcasts, we are challenged to know the Bible and prioritize our relationship with our Savior. Jane, your commitment to Bible teaching means so much. Perhaps as we look to a new year, others might join with Jane as a partner in the gospel by becoming a monthly partner. All you need to do is call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.